let's pray and ask this same Jesus to help us to understand what he wants to say to us through this passage. Lord, we pray for two things at least. One, that you would help us to understand something of this narrative, to enter into it to some degree, that you'd make it real for us. But more importantly, we ask you to speak to us, to open our eyes, to see your truth, and grant us grace to turn and to follow you, not as a one-off, but as a lifetime, that long obedience in the same direction as somebody has said. Amen. So we're going to Jerusalem and that's exciting because it's the big city. One would imagine many of the people in this crowd of pilgrims are from up north. They're, they're backwoods people like Jesus himself from up north in Nazareth. And Jerusalem is the big city. It's magnificent buildings. It's crowds of people. And I do mean crowds. The Jewish historian Josephus describes a Passover festival not quite at this time but about 30 years later where he reckons 2.7 million people participated that's not counting all the hangers on and the people who couldn't in the city even allowing for Josephus' tendency perhaps to exaggerate the numbers get the feeling that Jerusalem when we get there is going to be packed with people It's going to be exciting, wonderful, and we just can't wait to get there. But for now, we're in Jericho. And alongside all of this excitement, or underneath it maybe, there's a darker drama unfolding. Because Jesus has been very clear with his disciples. He's told them in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So there are these two conflicting things going on. There's excitement and buzz and it's wonderful and there's this undercurrent, a very dark drama that's beginning to unfold. And in a sense, we reach a turning point in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Many uh, theologians and writers talk about a messianic secret in Mark's Gospel. Because it seems as if, up until now, Jesus has been very quiet about who he is. He doesn't want a big fuss made. He doesn't want people to run around saying, this is the Messiah, this is the one we've been waiting for. But now somehow the time has come and there's no need for secrecy anymore. As the the time when everything would happen that had been predicted Jesus seems to feel that everything needs to be up front and as they've come down the Jordan Valley they've reached Jericho it's now time to head uphill towards Jerusalem for if you like the last lap of the journey the last day of the journey and as they are leaving Jericho we meet Bartimaeus Bartimaeus, the blind man who sees. 
Jericho is about 17 or 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And Bartimaeus sees in the sense that he has insight in a number of ways. He's quite smart. I mean, he's chosen a good patch. He's sitting there begging on the pilgrim route. Vast numbers of people, religious people, going past, surely he's going to get a lot of alms. So the money will come piling in. So he's smart, is Bartimaeus. But he has much deeper insight. Because perhaps unlike some of the crowds, even some of the crowds with Jesus, he seems to perceive something of who Jesus is. He calls him son of David. Perhaps he senses that somehow this Jesus is the answer to all of their dreams as a nation. That he's the one who's been promised for so long. But more importantly for him as an individual maybe, he recognises that Jesus is the one who can help him. He is the one, the only one, who can meet his need. Secondly, Bartimaeus has great persistence. He also has strong lungs, I think, because he shouts out. It's very interesting to hear Donald explain what an antiphon was, and an anthem, and we heard, if you like, a very... English cathedral tradition version of what Bartimaeus was doing and that was very interesting but Bartimaeus hadn't heard of the English cathedral tradition and so he wasn't so polite you know, he was screaming and shouting son of David have mercy on me and if he didn't hear it the first time again and again so as you know when people start making a fuss others say shh be quiet don't make a fuss but he wouldn't be silenced He's persistent. He is determined. He is going to meet with Jesus because Jesus is the one who can meet his need. If that was the end of the story, it would be interesting and perhaps commendable, but we would forget about it. The interesting thing is that Jesus responds to this frantic, desperate, noisy beggar. It's very interesting how Jesus operates. Don't you think it's strange, sometimes as Christians, we can give the impression to people that prayer has to be terribly polite and organized and measured. And here is Jesus responding to, well, anything but measured prayer. It's a cry of desperation. So Jesus stops and says, bring, bring the man here. Bartimaeus doesn't need to be asked twice, he throws away his coat and he's there. To be confronted by yet another, another of these extraordinary situations where Jesus seems to do something odd. He's faced by a blind beggar and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, is that a silly question? It might seem to be that. In Bartimaeus might have said, don't be stupid, of course, you know what I want, I want to see. But he doesn't. He actually responds with a fair bit of respect. He says, Rabbi, I want to see. So why does Jesus ask this silly question? A number of reasons, perhaps. He may be trying to strengthen, encourage Bartimaeus' faith as Bartimaeus actually articulates what it is he wants. 
But I think maybe Jesus is forcing Bartimaeus to be specific. Sometimes we can come to God with our needs and we say, perhaps our needs are someone else's, and we say, God bless so-and-so. And if we were listening, I think maybe Jesus would say to us, but how? What do you want me to do for you or for them, for him, for her? So Bartimaeus has to come right out and say the specific that he wants. He wants to see. Now I know sometimes we can be so low that even to do that is beyond us. And as Jesus can meet us there as well, but I think mostly he'd like us to be specific and honest. Let's not pretend. But to come with all our despair and our brokenness without fancy language and just to be honest with him. So Jesus answers this nobody, this beggar, this outcast. And he gives him what he asks. Very interesting because Last week, if you remember, we heard how James and John came with a question. They had some wants as well. And Jesus did not respond very favorably to their request. And they are disciples. You know, they're the inner circle. And here Jesus responds to a nobody who apparently has no call on his mercy whatsoever. So the disciples are disappointed in their request but not a blind beggar called Bartimaeus. Immediately, as we read, his sight is restored. So now the blind beggar who sees, sees in another sense as well. Not just inner perception, but physical sight. And Jesus says, your faith, has healed you, as Colin brought out very helpfully. But I think we need to take just a little sidetrack here to unpick that a bit, because does this mean that Jesus is saying that all you need is a bit of positive thinking? That if you believe hard enough, then you can have what you want? Well, no. Because Bartimaeus didn't just have faith that he would be healed, otherwise he wouldn't have had to come to Jesus. Bartimaeus has faith that Jesus is the one who can help him. The um, theologian John Noland puts it like this in his commentary on Luke's Gospel. He says, Faith is attributed to one who acts decisively on the basis of the conviction that God's help is to be found with Jesus and who responds in gratitude to God's gracious action. That's Bartimaeus. He acts decisively on the basis of his conviction that God's help is to be found with Jesus. So that's the kind of faith we're talking about. Not some kind of uh, pie in the sky or hope for the best, but a conviction that in Jesus our needs can can be met. Jesus does nothing you would notice to silence Bartimaeus. He doesn't say, okay, just keep quiet. Don't keep calling me son of David, okay? Um, again, we're, we're open now, out in the open. He seems willing to accept that rather messianic label, son of David, with all it signified of kingship and rulership of Israel and all the danger that brought with it politically in a, a Roman-occupied 
territory. So off they go to Jerusalem. As the story reads in Mark's Gospel, you think they got there five minutes later, but there's these 17 or 18 miles to go. And it's a climb. Um, a climb of about 3,000 feet, actually, from Jerusalem, from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So it takes quite a while in the hot sun. And they come to within a couple of miles of Jerusalem. They can't see the city yet. All they can see is a couple of villages ahead of them. When Jesus stops, and we come to the second section of this narrative, the strange business of a cult. Why does this bit of narrative appear? It seems strange. Why does Jesus ask his two disciples to go and borrow someone else's colt? We read in the other Gospels it's a donkey, colt. But why does Jesus want it? I mean, no one else seems to be riding. Now, you might, one possibility is that it was quite normal for a rabbi, a religious teacher, to ride and his disciples would trot along behind on foot except it really wasn't the done thing to arrive in Jerusalem on pilgrimage riding you walked into Jerusalem on pilgrimage unless unless Jesus means this as a quite deliberate self-conscious enactment of an ancient prophecy as Zechariah prophet had written several hundred years earlier rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout daughter of Jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey Whether all the crowd understood it or not, Jesus is clearly making a very explicit statement of his kingship, that he is the king coming to Jerusalem. And yet he's already made it clear he's coming to suffer, to die, and then to rise again. It's a cult that no one has ridden on before. And there are implications there in the Old Testament. The general rule is you didn't use something which had been used for ordinary purposes for a holy purpose there are other messianic allusions that people find in this passage I can't say I find them terribly convincing personally but how much did the crowd understand of what was going on so let's have a look at their response Hosanna the arrival of the king let's get back to festival excitement They've been walking all day, uphill, a great slog. Now they've had this strange business of his colt appearing and Jesus getting on it and so on. And they begin to get terribly excited. But you have to put yourself in their shoes now. You've walked all day in the heat and you're just about to crest the Mount of Olives. And suddenly out in front of you, this great panorama, there's the city, Jerusalem city of the great king all its amazing buildings there's a huge temple mount with its very impressive building that Herod had, had put together and restored very impressive especially if you come from the backwoods 
And then they're going for Passover festival. And all that meant to them as a nation, their national identity is tied up with this. Passover reminded them that God had redeemed them, had rescued them out of Egypt where they were in slavery. And unlike the way we tend to remember things, I think the Jewish system, the the Old Testament procedures meant that for a Jew, the Exodus was like it happened last week. This is not dim and distant history, this is part of their identity. So there's huge excitement here. We have somebody, maybe he's the Messiah. And this is Passover, we remember when God rescued us from Egyptian rule. And maybe it's all going to happen now. It's all terribly exciting. And who knows? Maybe this is it. The Romans will be sent packing and Jesus will reign in Jerusalem. It's all a mixture of religious fervor, nationalistic pride and hopes and dreams. Of course they were excited. And they weren't Brits, they were Jews, so they didn't mind showing that they were excited. So they throw their coats and they put Jesus on a donkey and it's all very noisy again. And they begin to shout. Interestingly, they, they begin to sing antiphonally, probably. Um, again, thanks to Donald for explaining. So what they probably happens is one bunch of them sings, Hosanna! And another group replies, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they continue, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then the first group says, Hosanna in the highest. And so on it goes again. To and fro, excited uh, explosion of praise. But what does it mean? I don't know if you've ever noticed that people don't always know what they're singing about. This is true even of Christians, I have to say. So let's look and see exactly what are these people saying. Well, partly they're singing from their hymn book. The Hebrew hymn book, the Psalms, and particularly from Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 was part of, was the final part of what was known as the Egyptian Hallel, Egyptian praise, because it was used at the time of Passover. And so to use Psalm 118 as you approach Jerusalem as a pilgrim coming for Passover was quite normal. So did they recognize anything special going on? Who knows? What were they actually saying? Hosanna. Well, Hosanna actually means save, save us. But it seems that it had been used a great deal liturgically over the years, the centuries, and perhaps it had lost some of that connotation, so it could be used as a blessing. Or probably as here as a kind of shout of acclamation, Hosanna to the Son of David. They weren't saying, save the Son of David. Or even as a greeting for pilgrims. It's a bit similar to the way in our contemporary society people use the word hallelujah. Often without having a foggiest notion what it means. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh, the Lord. But many people will use that without understanding that. And so it's quite possible that people in this crowd said, Hosanna, without really giving it much thought. So blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That seems to mean they recognize that Jesus is the one who's coming in the name of the Lord. But this also had become a kind of standard religious greeting. 
and especially for greeting pilgrims. So it could almost be read to mean, blessed in the name of the Lord, be he who comes. So we don't actually know from that how much the crowd understood. We know from elsewhere that probably not a lot is the answer. Great ambiguity. What do they have in mind? If they expect anything, it's probably to do with nationalism, a political or military messiah. But Jesus comes gentle and riding on donkey. And he comes to suffer, to die, and to rise again. He comes to rescue from a much more profound problem than Roman oppression but from the deepest problem, the deepest need we have as human beings to be brought into a relationship with the God who made us. A relationship we were designed for, but have lost by our rebellion against that same God, our Creator. And it's by his dying and rising again that Jesus is going to deal with that problem. And there really isn't time to explore anything like the depths of why that should be. But that is the way it had to be. And so the excited bunch of pilgrims reaches Jerusalem. And Jesus goes straight to the temple. First stop, temple. Now it's not that he hadn't been there before. He was quite familiar with it. He knew its nooks and crannies, I'm sure. So it's not coming as a tourist, it's not a tourist visit. There's a sense in which this is an inspection by the Lord of the temple to see what's going on in his temple. And we'll see in subsequent weeks something of what comes from his inspection. Another prophet, Malachi, wrote like this, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi also goes on to say, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Well, the outworking of that, you'll have to come back next week to hear. Let's try to pull this together in some kind of conclusion. We don't actually know whether Bartimaeus became a long-term disciple of Jesus or not. We know he followed Jesus along the roads, presumably all the way to Jerusalem, but we can't be sure. But a little hint that maybe he did become a member of the early church and that's why his name is used because folk knew him but we can't be sure still less do we know about the crowd who cried Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord now I can hear some of you telling me oh it didn't last because a few days later they were crying crucify well I'm not so sure I think the crucify crowd were probably a substantially different crowd of people. There were lots of people in Jerusalem. They weren't all there in front of Pilate. 
And I think some of these people were just confused. They'd followed Jesus down from Galilee, and we don't know what becomes of them later on. Seems a bit unsatisfactory. But in a sense, it actually isn't too important whether Bartimaeus became a disciple, very important for him, or the crowd became disciples. Actually, the point is, what about me? And what about you? See, Bartimaeus recognised his need of Jesus. He knew he needed to see. He may have even been aware of deeper needs. But that much he did know. I don't know where you're at as you hear all of this this morning. Maybe you're weighed down by some particular need, some problem, some difficulty. Do you recognise that in Jesus is the answer? Maybe you're conscious of the most deepest need of all, that need to be put right with God. This great disjunction between us and God that we cannot relate because we've rebelled against him. And you're conscious of that, conscious of the guilt of it and, and the pressure of it. Do you recognise it's Jesus who can deal with that? It's one thing to know our need. It's another thing to realise that Jesus is the answer to our questions, to our need. So are we willing to cry out to him? See, Bartimaeus really didn't care what anybody thought. He was going to meet Jesus. And if the crowd thought he was nuts, well, that's just too bad. He was going to meet Jesus. I wonder if any of us here are that desperate to meet this king who comes to Jerusalem on a donkey. Is there any point at work when Paul, who became a Christian sometime later in a very dramatic way, wrote to Christians in Rome, he put it like this. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. A blind beggar outside Jericho. A captain of industry, member of the aristocracy, or the down and out begging on Rose Street or Prince's Street. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So does everyone include me? Does everyone include you? Let's pray.